Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians 3 this morning, if you'd like to turn there. In the uh, P.O.S., they are page 977. So before we dive in, uh, we're going to look at a little bit of the context that's going to be important to what we're talking about today. In a historical sense, uh, Paul is uh, writing this letter from prison. Uh, If you remember, Paul was converted on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. Uh, He he went on a number of missionary trips throughout that Mediterranean area, planted churches, uh, including the one in Ephesus that this letter is directed to. Uh, At the end of that third missionary journey, he returned to Jerusalem with a a, a gift and a love offering that he had collected from those churches uh, that he was bringing back to the church in Jerusalem that was going through some hard times. Um, And while he was there, he went into the temple uh, to to share the gospel with the Jews who had assembled there. And uh, those um, unbelieving Jews started a riot. They accused him of bringing uh, Gentiles into an area of the temple which was forbidden. We talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago, uh, where there was that wall that Gentiles were not permitted to pass that wall, that dividing wall. Uh, and so there's, there's this hubbub, and um, basically the police, the soldiers show up, and they get everything calmed down, and Paul asks to give a speech. And he gives his testimony, essentially. He talks about how he was converted. uh, And he gets to the point where he's he's relaying something that that God had said to him in a vision. Uh, This is from Acts 22. And he, being God, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so this response is an example of the enmity, of the, of the conflict that existed between Jew and Gentile. So Paul was preaching to the Jewish non-believers about the salvation that had been made available to both Jew and Gentile, and they were ready to kill him for it. Uh, so Paul uh, is, is arrested, and a number of pit stops and complications along the way uh, ends up in Rome under house arrest, which is where he's writing this letter from. Uh, and so in, in, our, in our last time together, we had talked about the, the alienation that existed, the alienation between God and man, and the alienation that existed between man and his fellow man, specifically Jew and Gentile. And the dividing wall of hostility that existed between each of those groups, preventing that reconciliation. And how ultimately it was the law that was that dividing wall. And so uh, it says in in Romans 7 that the law exists to expose sin in our lives. And so it it is that sin and the knowledge of that sin that separates God from man. But the law also separates those who follow it from those who do not. And there's this dividing wall of hostility that existed in in both of those circumstances that it says in in chapter 2, verse 19. um, mm, 
No, not verse 19. But anyway, uh, in Christ, that wall was, that dividing wall of hostility was torn down. And when that was torn down, Jew and Gentile were united together into one body, into the church. And the church was united with God. So we're going to pick up in, in chapter 3. Um, so let's, let's take a look at that. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by, by revelation, as I have written briefly. Uh, so Paul is writing this, and, and he's pointing out that he was a prisoner on their behalf. He was in prison for them. But he viewed this situation not as a problem or, a, or as some sort of injustice, but he viewed his imprisonment essentially as an investment that he was making into the work of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. So despite his affliction, he was concerned about it, involved with these churches, and, and sought to further the spread of the gospel using his time there. Uh, and everything that we're going, um, everything from verse 2 through verse 13 uh, is essentially a, a rabbit trail that he goes down here. Um, so if you, if you look at the beginning of chapter 3 and then at, at verse 13, or 14 rather, he'll pick back up his train of thought. But everything that we're going to look at is, uh, is a little bit of a rabbit trail, which makes me feel better about going down rabbit trails every so often. If Paul can do it, I can do it too. Uh, <clears throat> So he's making the assumption here that the believers have been passing on the story of their conversions. They've been passing on uh, how the gospel came to them, how the gospel changed them. Uh, and part of that story has to have been Paul. It's only been, uh, I can't remember, five or ten years that Paul has been gone from the Ephesian church at this time. Uh, and he points out that, uh, that he was given stewardship of God's grace for the church in Ephesus. Uh, so that, that idea of stewardship is something that's a little bit foreign to us as a culture. Um, think of it almost as a, as a you've been given uh, a management of God's grace for this church. Um, and it, uh, the idea of a steward is that whatever a steward was given, they were supposed to use it for a specific purpose. They were supposed to use it for some sort of a designated end. So if I give you $5 to go to the store and buy some bread and milk, I've given you stewardship of that money for a particular purpose. And if you come back with you know, Reese's cups and, and, and a bottle of Pepsi, that's not good stewardship, right? So, yeah. so what Paul is saying here is that he was not entrusted with this gospel just for his own purposes. He was entrusted with this gospel so that these believers might come to know it. Uh, specifically, this word of, of reconciliation of the Gentiles being made one with the Jews for the benefit of the Gentiles. Uh, John Stott points out that all revealed truth is held in stewardship. It's given to be shared, not monopolized. If men cannot keep their scientific discoveries to themselves, how much less should we keep our, 
to ourselves the divine disclosures. So if you had a cure for cancer, if you had a cure for heart disease or for addiction, you would be trying to get the word out as quickly and as broadly as you could. You know, that, that isn't something that you would keep under your hat and not tell anybody about. You'd want to tell everybody. And so we too have been made stewards of the gospel. And so Paul's message here, the redemption, the salvation, and the reconciliation of God and of man is so much greater than any discovery that science could ever conceive of. And he was determined to be a good steward of that gospel message, to discharge it, to discharge that responsibility in a way that was fitting the news that he carried. In verse 3, he refers to that news as a mystery, and he's going to do that throughout the rest of the passage. Uh, and so we look at a mystery a little bit differently than, um, than he would have. Uh, so what he refers to as a mystery is, is a truth that has previously been hidden away, but has now been disclosed. Uh, so when he says mystery, uh, you know, think of like if somebody does a magic trick and, you know, you look at it and then they do it so that you can see how they did that magic trick. You know, they show you where the, where the card went or where the coin went or what they did. That is what Paul means by mystery. It used to be hidden, but now it's been disclosed. Uh, so let's pick up in verse four. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this glorious nature, this redemptive nature of God's plan wasn't known previously. Now, all through the Old Testament, it had been hinted at, it had been alluded to, and the believers in the Old Testament trusted in the fact that God was going to provide a way to save. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew where he was coming. They knew some of the details of his death and his resurrection. And they knew that the Gentiles would be saved in some way by that Messiah as well. But they knew nothing about the way that this salvation would be enacted. And so this was the great mystery that Paul references here. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So this mystery here is what we discussed last week, that God intended to build his church by uniting believers into one body. Uh, he refers to uh, fellow heirs here. That's a reference back to uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 11. Members of the same body, chapter 2, verse 19. Partakers of the promise, chapter 1, verse 13. So he's reiterating these points that he's already made. That the Gentiles and the Jews are fellow heirs together, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So we knew from the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be saved. But this idea of them being unified together with the Jews was something that was completely foreign 
to both Jew and Gentile. And the blessing didn't require that these Gentiles become Jews first, but it met them where they were. It met them as they were, as Gentiles. But if you remember back to, uh, to the point in the story of, of Acts 22 uh, that, that I talked about earlier, all Paul needed to do was say the word Gentile. And the Jews were ready to kill him for it. It was from these two people, from these two people groups, and the dividing wall of hostility between them, that God was going to build his church. So if we were going to build a church, how much more sense would it make to do it some other way? You know, there's, um, there's a, there has been a tendency over the last 20 or 30 years uh, to build church for me. You know, you can build a church for mechanics. You can build a church for farmers. You can build a church for millennials. You know, you can slice and dice your demographics whatever way you want to get a church together of people who are all just the same, who all think the same way, who all believe the same way, who all uh, are the same age or the same whatever. That's the way that the world would build a church, to gather together all of the people who were the same. But that's not what happens here. God's way is different. He takes people who couldn't possibly be any more different. He takes people who couldn't possibly have more reason to separate themselves from from one another, who couldn't hate each other more, and he puts them together as one to be his people. And we see that played out today if we look for it. God is taking millions of people from every tribe, every tongue, every country, skin color, class, every culture, and making them together into his one church. And this is ultimately the picture that we see in, uh, in Revelation 7. This is on page 1032. This is Revelation 7, verse 9. And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, punches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In the kingdom of God, there are no divisions. There are no distinctions. There are no denominations. There are no political parties. There are no worship preferences. But in that kingdom, we will all have been washed clean of our pride and our arrogance and our prejudice. We will have been washed clean of the sins that lead to these things among us, of the sins that trouble and burden and weary us. 
for those who know him, who love him, serve him and trust him, there will only be Christ. There is only Christ. And we will glorify him together forever. So this is the mystery that Paul has been entrusted with. And this is the gospel that he proclaims. Picking up in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul was not given this role by his own desire. This was not something that he came up with, but he was given this role by God. And he identifies himself as the least of all of the saints, um, partially because uh, it's, and, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, but partially because he was likely a very small man. But he points back to his initial persecution of the church. Paul spent the first years of his life as an adult seeking to kill believers. And so he looks back at that at this and says, I am the least of all of the saints based on how I treated the church. But it, is, but it is an example of the grace of God that he has been called to minister as he is. He considered it grace that he was allowed to preach the gospel. And shouldn't we consider it the same? And he points back to the unsearchable riches of Christ that he spent the first two chapters of Ephesians outlining. Gospel as the unsearchable riches. And he also points out that the gospel is light. It is light in that it dispels the darkness. And there is no battle between darkness and light. But the smallest bit of light casts out all of the darkness. No darkness ever snuffed out a candle. No darkness ever caused a flashlight to stop shining. Because darkness is just the absence of light. The smallest gospel light can be enough to dispel that darkness. So verse 10. Uh, if you're inclined to underline or highlight in your Bible, this is the primary verse uh, in this section here. So go ahead and do that. Verse 10. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll read from verse 8 again just to get the context. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So before we pull that apart, just a couple of um, terms. When he says manifold wisdom, uh, manifold in, in, the, in the biblical sense uh, means many faceted, variegated, multicolored, diverse. Um, it's used in 
outside of the Bible in writings of this time to talk about tapestries or bouquets of flowers. Uh, And so God's manifold wisdom doesn't just refer to salvation, but it refers to the unification of these disparate people, these unification of these uh, people who had so much to disagree on, but were being united together in the church. And so just as a tapestry is woven together from threads of every color imaginable to form this beautiful pattern, God's church is woven together to be able to demonstrate his glory. And so in, um, and it's being, um, to demonstrate his glory, specifically it says here, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so this is, uh, This combines a couple of terms that Paul uses elsewhere to refer both to angels and also to demons. So God's redemptive plan, it says here, is not known or was not known to these beings, but the church was instituted to be able to demonstrate that to them. Uh, Warren Wearsby says in his uh, Bible exposition commentary that God is educating the angels by the means of the church. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 uh, that it was revealed to them, uh, that them being the prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves but you, but us today, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the church is the expression of God's wisdom, his wisdom in sending Christ that all things might be unified in him. And that wisdom is expressed in this universal church where Jew and Gentile live together and worship as one body in harmony with God and in harmony with each other. And so we, as members of the church, have knowledge. We have this intimate working knowledge of the wisdom of God through our participation in the church and our belief in the gospel. And and that is something that the angels long to look into. That is something that the heavenly beings don't understand. One of the things that we see throughout Scripture is that Satan works to destroy. He works to tear down. He works to divide. But God, through the gospel, is working to build up. He's working to create. He's working to unify, to build a new people out of these broken shells, these dry bones. And his primary vehicle of unification in this physical world, the primary representation of his power to reconcile people together is the church. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the purpose of God has been, it tells us here, 
from before time began for Jesus to come and die and through his death and resurrection to build the church. This was not a backup plan. This was not a plan B. But rather, God's plan was realized by sending the Son into the frame of our time to build up the church for his glory, that we might be saved, that we, sinners though we are, might be brought together as one into unity with God. And it is for the good of these believers, for the good of the church, that Paul is suffering. So he tells them, don't lose heart. Don't worry about me because the work that God began in me that he gave me stewardship over has been manifest in you. What you see, what you see in the church, what you see in these people of all shapes and colors and sizes and types coming together, that is what he was born for. And he sees that. And so the chains that he had, the prison that he was in, it was suffering. But he asked them not to lose heart. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. John Stott went on to write, The coming into existence of the church as a community of saved and reconciled people is at one same time a public demonstration of God's power, grace, and wisdom. First of God's mighty resurrection power, next of his immeasurable grace and kindness, and now thirdly of his manifold wisdom. And he goes on to say that uh, it is as if a great drama is being enacted. It's as if there's this play that's going on where history is the theater and the world is the stage and the church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play and he directs and produces it. So act by act, scene by scene, line by line, the, stories to con- the story continues to unfold. And so we are all players upon this stage, to paraphrase Shakespeare. But who is the audience? The audience are all of these cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so they are the spectators in this drama of salvation. And so thus the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. And it is not just our individual salvations that are being played out on that stage, but it's the creation of a new humanity. The purpose of the gospel is not just to redeem us, but to adopt us. Not just to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to each other. So God is glorified 
true the church when we are united, when we are one, when we transcend class and status and age and race and interests, we cause the world around us and even these angels watching that play to look at it and scratch their heads and say, huh, that doesn't make any sense. Why are all of these different people gathering together? Why are they able to set aside their differences? But it's only through the power of the gospel and to the glory of God that this happens. How then shall we live? If it is to the glory of God and through the power of the gospel that we are knit together, how shall we live? So I have a challenge, a to-do list for you. In the coming week, I want you to have a conversation. I want you to have a conversation with somebody from this body who is either very unlike you or somebody who you don't really know well at all. And I want you to have that conversation, but I don't want you to talk about all of the stuff that we normally talk about when we get together. I don't want you to talk about the weather. No talking about the snow. I don't want you to talk about your families. I don't want you to talk about sports. But I want you to ask them to tell you their testimony. Tell them, tell you how God saved them and give them yours. Ask them to share a hard time that God saw them through. Ask them who the best example of Christ in their life has been. Ask them when they were baptized. What led to that? What was the most impactful sermon that you've heard? Who have you been praying for lately? What was the last thing that you read in your Bible? And what did it tell you about who God is? What did it tell you about who you are? And so when we build our relationships, when we build our discussions around the shared table, those things that we can manufacture on our own, those things that we share in common outside of the gospel, we are essentially stealing glory from God. Because in the end, the gospel has to define what a church is. It has to be the single unifying theme. Because if something other than the gospel is what binds us together, then we are not a church. If we are relying on something other than the gospel to keep us together, then we are not the church. We're a social club. We're a community organization. But likewise, if we have the gospel without the church, then we are choosing to not participate in God's plan to reveal himself to the world. But when we build our relationships on that shared language of the glory of the gospel of Jesus, when we bind ourselves to each other with the threads of our redemption and the threads of our salvation, those are cords that cannot be broken. Those are ties that bind securely. 
And they will hold us together through all of the troubles and trials and worries that come of being in this broken world. So not only does the church accomplish this in the world, but our unity, our togetherness is what God uses to demonstrate his wisdom and his power to the rest of the universe. There are a number of commands all throughout the Bible um, that are referred to as the one another's, love one another being the most common one. Directives to the church as to how we are to interact with each other. And so as we work through those one another's with each other, the power of God through the grace of his gospel is revealed to those in heaven and those here on earth. So go and have, the, have that conversation this week. I'm just asking for one. And if you want bonus points, because I'm keeping track, if you want bonus points, come back prepared next week to share how you were encouraged, to share how you were strengthened by that conversation, to share how God used that person's life, that person's story, to speak into yours. And as we have those conversations, as, we, as those relationships grow, not based on age or preference or stage in life, but based on the gospel, then we are knit together into the church, stronger and better able to reflect God's glory into our world. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your church and the way that you have given the church to grow up together, to be knit together, to be crafted individually and together into better reflectors of you, into better imitators of you. And we look forward, God, with great anticipation to the day when that work will be completed, to the day when we will be made into a suitable bride for Christ. When our infirmities, when our weakness, when our inability to do what is right is removed, and we are able to worship you in spirit and in truth for all eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.